Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. title of the sermon is All Peoples Truly United Under Christ. All people truly united under Christ. As you're turning there, I would just make this comment, these comments to begin. I know that there are those in the congregation even, and especially those outside the congregation here, who might question the need to preach on this topic. They might wonder, I mean, this is 2012. Can't we be rid of this topic of how we relate to one another along racial lines? And the truth is, I wish we could be rid of it. I wish we didn't have to talk about it. But the reality is, we have to talk about it because whether we want to admit it or not, we are deeply divided, even today, along racial and cultural lines. Have we made progress? Has this nation moved forward? Have we as a people moved forward? Absolutely. We've made progress. We've moved forward. But I'm convinced... Until we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, it will be necessary to keep in mind the need of integration in the body of Christ. It's been said, and probably rightly so, that the most segregated hour in a week in our culture is the hour you're experiencing right now. You go to the classroom, whether public or private, it doesn't matter, not in our day. There's a multiplicity of cultures represented. You go to the workplace, every stripe, every kind, working together. You look at athletics, you look at coaches. You won't find anybody that I know of in our day struggling with the unification based on their common purpose. And that's what I want to talk to you about as we get started. Why do we see, even not though it's not best, it's not greatest, but it is moving and it is progressive, why do we see the outworking of centuries of struggle coming into a more full expression of our people here in the United States, unified, is because of a unity of purpose. Whenever you're at school, there's a unified purpose. Everyone comes to learn, to grow, at some point, hopefully. Right? But there's a unified purpose for being in the classroom. Everyone is growing, everyone's learning, everyone's progressing hopefully in their knowledge there's a unified purpose you go to the workplace and you look and there's multiplicity there of, uh, of varying degrees and you say these people all love one another they get along they work together they joke together they go to break together they eat lunch together they what's they what why because they have something in common they come together to accomplish a goal in business 
or in, in government work, whatever the, uh, the atmosphere and whatever the uh, place that they're at, it, it, it's about a purpose. You go to the football field, the basketball court, wherever. You look and you say, how can, in our college-dominated world, college enthusiast to football is like no other in the South, right? We love our college football. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I don't make statements like this, but I feel the need. <laughs> Friday, I got giddy. Because Friday night, I could click on my computer and see, and I, it will go unnamed what team I'm speaking of, started practicing. You want to know the truth? I don't care. When it comes to that team, if they be black or white or red or yellow or Martian blue, for that matter. All I care about is can they get me to the purpose I want every year. Not every other year or every few years or every few decades. Every year. Can they get me where I want to go? That's all I care about. Purpose. In that locker room, and I've been in it, there is a sense in which in those practices, in those moments, in the showers, at the training table, there is perfect unity about the purpose, and that brings people together. People of Grace Fellowship, there is no higher purpose than that of the gospel. So why is this hour the most segregated of all the hours of the week? Why? And I'll tell you, we haven't made perfect progress yet. Because if you go look at our maps of where we live and you see who people spend their time with on Saturday, you would question the progress in most places in Cowan County. Just take a ride through a neighborhood. Spend some time in a neighborhood. I live in a middle-class neighborhood in Jacksonville, Alabama. And there's some diversity there, but it's little. It's not much, it's for, that, it's, 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 and it's to itself, each family to themselves kind of thing. The, the, listen, the people that find such unity in those secular settings we're talking about, they still choose to live separately often. Because the purpose they're serving is only a programmatic purpose for a time, for a goal, and it ends. The gospel goal never ends until the kingdom. The unity that is found among brothers and sisters in Christ is greater than any unity you will ever have with someone you work with, go to school with, or play ball with. Because we're singularly focused, hopefully, biblically, on one goal. And that is the glory of God in the face of Christ for the joy of all people. And so, yes, it is needful to speak about these things still in our day, even though we have made progress socially, we're not there yet. And so we continue to look at it, and we continue to pull it out. Another, think, another set of thinking, another way you might think about this is to say, well, you don't do this with everything. You don't pull out everything and deal with it separately. 
You're right. I deal with things separately, like the sanctity of life, like the relationship between the races, like adoption. I deal with things separately in these targeted sermons, which I think, in our culture, strike the, the strongest blows against Christ. And yes, I put race relations right there with abortion as striking a blow against the central core teaching of the gospel. When it's wrongly understood, it divides people, this relationship, and so it must be addressed. And you say, well, just let it come up naturally. It hardly ever does. Hardly ever. I can only go on my experience, the experience of people I speak with, but in my church I grew up in, good church, biblical church, godly people, there was never a time, not once, that anyone approached the issue of the problem we have in the church of division along racial lines. Nobody ever talked about it. Because they never talked about it, being as dense as I am, it never bothered me that my whole church was white, mainly Caucasian. It never dawned on me. I just thought that's the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't until I grew in, in the Lord and physically and moved to other situations that I began to see something's wrong here. Something's wrong. And so I think there's the need to address it. And before I go any further, I want to congratulate and praise you. Because from our beginning, we've talked about this, and I think we're beginning to see the great effect it has. Because I praise God I do not worship in a congregation that looks like me only every Sunday. Are we where we want to be? No. But are we further along than we were eight years ago? Absolutely. And so we keep pressing, we keep pushing. I know there are those, and I think they're idealists, but they have a good heart many times when they say, I just wish we could all be colorblind. Well, yes, in some ways that would be good, but it's not the case. It's not the facts, okay? It's not the facts. That's not the real world we live in. And secondly, hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll see, I don't know that God wants us to be. I don't know that really at the heart of God is this desire that we all forget that there are differences, but rather that we see that God has redeemed the differences and brought them together in Christ for His greater glory. Now before I get into the text, where it's where we're going painstakingly, I know, I want to make one more analogy and then I want to read the passage, and you see if you don't see what I see. I mentioned it last week. Let's think to ourselves right now of our favorite instrument. Everybody has a different one. Okay? At my house, piano reigns. Because I love piano, though I cannot play it. I quit in the third grade, and Miss King told me I would regret it, and I do. Okay? But I thought ball was more important than piano, so I chose ball. But I love the piano. I, I, I think it is a beautiful instrument. 
You've got your favorite. I can't name them all. It's, we'd be here all day, and I don't know them. Obviously, I don't even know all the classifications according to last week's sermon. You've got it in your mind. You're thinking of it, and how beautiful it is when it's played. It's magnificent, isn't it? I mean, someone sits down at this beautiful piece of craftsmanship and plays wonderfully every Sunday for us. Abigail brings us before the throne of God with a gift God has given her and the work, hard work of somebody, whoever he is, he's dead and gone now, who built that thing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And every now and then, I like to hear it all by itself with nothing else. I just like to hear it. It's beautiful. But I don't always like it that way. Because the piano is not just made to stand alone in the world of music, but rather to support and bring about greater unity in the entirety of the musical scale and, and, and the different, uh, the different uh, instrumentation. You see, the great thing about a piano is it beats out a steady rhythm for us and brings in some accompaniment which fills up the music for us so that all the other instruments on stage sound fuller and better and stronger. That's one of the purposes of a great piano. And so we can have guitars and drums and pianos and one day we might have violins and cellos and we, we just might fill the place up. I think the more we could have up here, the better. Okay? Everyone playing to the glory of God would be better. And we would enjoy and be ministered to better. And we would say, that's beautiful music. And the more you add to it, the more it rhymes and brings out the trueness of the music, the beauty of the music. And you see the artistic thing just displayed like a picture in front of you. Some of you have sat through that kind of music. And, and once you've really tasted it, you, the other stuff just isn't the same anymore. It's just kind of bland. When you've sat under good music, you just your heart's filled up when you say, that's what I want all the time. I want that all the time. This other cheap imitation just doesn't cut it. Now, the way we talk about music is the way God thinks about the races. He says, oh, I love Caucasians, Caucasian people. Caucasian people are beautiful. I look at them and I see them. And I see my glory in them. In, in them. But they're no good on the stage by themselves. They're no good. They need, they need to be surrounded by some from every tribe and every tongue and every people. With one purpose, the glory of God in the heart, out of the mouth, surrounding the throne of God. Listen, Unlike anything we can imagine, when we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and marvel at His grace, we will marvel at the fact that there is a rainbow of praise being offered in a, in a thunderous sound from every tongue. God, at His heart, loves multi multiplicity in this category, in the races. He loves it. He created it. And He has redeemed. Look at chapter 5 now. We'll begin in verse 8. The scene is John being caught up into a vision in heaven. Seeing what's taking place then, 
and what must take place throughout the history of the world until it's climactic in in the new heavens and the new earth. And when he's called up in chapter 4, he's standing in the throne room of God and there is a rainbow that has appeared around that, thr- that throne. And there are awesome descriptions of who God is here. The unceasing praise before God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We hear here the penultimate of praise casting down their crowns saying out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is high and lifted up worship before the throne of God. It's a scene which we can think about and try to imagine but really can't grasp the depths of yet. We've never seen it. And then he moves into chapter 5 to show that there among this great praise is sadness because there's nobody who can open the scroll. There's nobody who can unfurl the plan of redemption. And then there's one who comes, who is the Lamb of God, slain as before the foundation of the world. And He is worthy to open this scroll. And then all of heaven breaks into praise again and worship. And that's what we want to look at. And I want you to see what's happening here in verse 8. And when He had taken the scroll, talking about the Lamb talking about Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. We are to understand from this that the Gospel is before Him and the church, united from all time, is worshiping. Both its expression in the Old and the New Covenant. It's all here. It is thrown, and all of them fall down, each holding a harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which is the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song, these elders that represent the church. So we understand the church now is worshiping Christ at the throne of God. They're worshiping. And what are they saying? Worthy, they're singing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, mind this carefully, people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation or every ethnic group. Ethnos is the root word there. Ethnic group. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. You'll never hear angels saying the angels are singing. They're always talking. People are always singing. Singing is the response of one who's been redeemed. Singing is the response of God's people. Not to disparage the angels. 
But it's never revealed to us that they sing anything. I hear that all the time. I used, I used to say it all the time. We don't ever see it. And they're always talking, proclaiming, messengers, telling. But the people of God in heaven are always singing. Because the song of redemption has been written in them. And they can't help but well up in praise to God. But what they're saying is, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, the gospel said, Amen. And the elders fell down. The whole church fell down and worshipped. God. We've had some great times in worship in this place. And I pray to God as long as we live, we have many more. But we've never had a worship service like that. But it's coming. It's coming. And hold on to your seats. And as we begin to look more like that body gathered there, we will experience more of that kind of worship. Now do you see why we have a Sunday called Racial Reconciliation? Why we focus on multiple ethnic groups worshiping together? Because I believe as those ethnic groups are brought together on the earth under the reign of Jesus Christ and the purpose of the gospel, we get closer to the throne room, not further away. When we sit in fully Caucasian, all-white, stiff worship services, we move away from the throne of God, not to it. And when we live in neighborhoods that are only like us, and when we marry people only like us, and when we tell our children to play with people only like us, we're moving away from the heart of God, not to it. We have an adoption fund here, and sometimes I'm questioned, why don't you help and support Adoption in, America, in the United States. Why is it an international adoption fund? There are a lot of reasons, but one is because of this very thing. Because I believe one of the purposes of international adoption is to physically, where possible, show the world that not only do we love people not like us, but they're our family. They live in our homes. They eat our food because they are us. And yes, you can do that locally, and there's a lot of help for people doing that. Often the adoption is free. If you'll take the at-risk, multicultural person into your home, they, almost, almost every time you work through the system, it, it's very inexpensive to do it. And I encourage it. It's just we have to focus on something. So we focus on international adoption. And our family has experienced And the Campbells are experiencing it. And there's at least two or three other couples right now praying about wanting, making sacrifices to adopt this way because they, we, we desire here to preach to the world that we are better. We are more like Christ. We are more like God when we're together than when we're apart. So, having read the passage, let me make just a, a few points here quickly. And that is to say, number one, that the Lamb died for all 
the ethnic groups of the world. Christ died for all the ethnic groups of the world. Now, where do I get ethnic? I use that term. It's not in the passage if you look at it in the English, but it is there. That word nation in verse 9 is ethnic. The problem with missions and with reaching out to people around the world with the gospel for a long time in the Western world was we viewed the world cut up into nice, neat borders, and we said, well, we're going to send missionaries to Uganda. And when someone prayed the prayer of acceptance and submission to the Lordship of Christ in Uganda, we could report back, there's someone now from Uganda in the kingdom. What's the problem with that view? Well, in the island of Hong Kong, in an area no bigger than a mile, there are living over 20 ethnic groups. They speak different languages. They eat different food. They see the world through different eyes. And sadly, for a lot of them, they've been worshiping separately for years. They're coming together now. But that's just in one city, in one little mile of the city. There's 20 different, distinct ethnic groups. When you put that on the nation of China, you end up with what the Chinese government recognizes to be 52 distinct nations inside of China. The government says there are 52 different nations they all have their own language, they have their own customs, they see the world through their own eyes. So what's the problem with sending Lottie Moon to China and saying when she has a convert, now someone from China's in heaven? What nation are they from? What ethnic group do they come from? We don't even know. And see, for 200 years in the modern mission movement, that was the way we reported things. But then, by God's grace, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the literature began to turn through the work of some men I won't name because I'll leave somebody out, but these men painstakingly tried to understand the Bible on its own terms, and they looked at Uganda and said, we can draw all the squares we want. Those are different people. They looked at a place like China and said, wait a minute, something's not right here. We've reached some people here to speak Mandarin and come from this specific nation. But there's in the inland of China, there's whole groups of people that have never heard the gospel. Our missionary to Papua New Guinea would tell you they're finding nations every day, every month, every year. They come up on new nations. And now that Rod... Is, is working in the organization, is working in Mexico, believe it or not, guess what they're finding? Whole ethnic groups of people that are unknown, unreached in the inland of Mexico. So you say, we accomplished the task. The gospel went to Mexico. Sure, in the major cities, in the major ethnic group, it did. But now there's all these small Indian ethnic groups there in the inland, unreached. Never heard the gospel. And what do we say about that? We say, the lamb died for them. So we should be running after them, not running from them. 
I believe it is the water drank from the well of a great school in Wheaton College that inspired young men to go die for some of these groups in the 50s. It is their understanding that God wants those, as they were known then, savage people to hear His Word. And by God's grace, a whole group came to the kingdom. So my first point is that the Lamb was essentially dying, and when He died for these people, He died for them. Secondly, I would say from the passage that the Lamb's sacrifice will not fail. It will not fail. Notice in the worship, it is not, it is not simply a hope, but a stated fact that the blood of the Lamb ransomed people for, from, for God. Ransomed people. Past tense. It's done. You see that? It's not, he's trying to ransom some people. He made an offer to ransom people. No, he did ransom them. When people struggle so hard against the teaching that God on the cross objectively saved people, and they want to say instead, He just made that offer open to all people so that they then could decide whether to believe or not. They're playing with the theology of texts like this. Notice He died. They're ascribing praise to Christ here, saying, your blood, you ransomed people. You did it, Christ, for God. From every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. So, it was His purpose and His purpose was accomplished. And third, the purpose seen here in the text that Christ's ransoming of people leads to the salvation of the elect in all people groups and all nations, drives us as a church then to go after all people groups as a church. To go after them for the glory of Christ. To take the gospel to them. Okay? I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Uh, not here, anyway. I hope you wouldn't. And so this mystery that was revealed in Christ is that God's gospel is for Jew and Gentile and all the multiplicities that exist under the label Gentile, which is the whole world except the Jewish people. Okay? His offer was for them. <clears throat> and so I might ask, why then? Why? Why is it so hard? Why is life so hard here when it comes to this very issue? We know it's where we're headed. But why are we struggling so hard here? Well, sin. The first application of this sermon is to say, for myself and for you, each of us holds within our hearts what might be phrased as Racially prideful thoughts or racially discriminating thoughts. 
We either hold ourselves up and our race of people up higher than we should, or we tear down other people groups with our words, our thoughts, our actions. But there is no exception to that in this congregation. None. It's more pronounced in some. And some of you would never say it. But inside your heart, you think what others say. And so the first application of understanding the call of Christ and His blood to all peoples is to repent of our sin of racism. Racism is any thought, action, thought or action, which either exalts unduly one race of people or tears down all others. It's, it's racism. And there have been no, no, no one I've ever found that is completely understanding in this way. There's some struggle more than others with this. But we all struggle. Second application for our church is that we should adopt as our heart, because we are redeemed by the gospel, the heart of God on this subject. Inside our own minds, hearts, and families, we should adopt it first. Study the Bible. And we've, we've, we've only focused on one passage here, but in Ephesians, in our study through Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's clear it was on Paul's mind there. In Colossians, he deals with it again. In Romans chapter 11, he's very detailed about how God is bringing people to himself from all races, all tribes, all people groups, all ethnic groups. So we should accept and, and make our heart like his heart. Under His grace. That should be our prayer. God, make me like you. Confessing sin first and then saying, make me like you. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man. It has to be an action continually in our life. I've used it before, but I want to use it again here. There is a reflex which occurs often when I'm in the car with people. And you're going to do this probably if we ride together. And some of you will never let me ride in your car again because I'm about to tell you what will happen. There's a reflex that happens, I've noticed. We're riding along Quintard, coming from Oxford. And when we cross over the hill and come down into Aniston, the lock button gets hit. I make sure the doors are locked. I announce a work project in Constantine, and the participation is so much less than a project in Jacksonville. Why? I announce a project in Jacksonville, and I get questions through Ignite, not just this church. I'm not picking here. I'm, I'm just saying, as our group of seven churches, I get lots of questions when we go to Anniston and work that I never get asked in Jacksonville. We announce a project in Jacksonville, they just don't even ask. I mean, statements as simple as, do you think it's dangerous? 
you mean you might fall off a ladder? See, they know and I know that's not what they're asking. Are we going to be there after dark? Vacation Bible school for the last four years has been held down in Glen Addy for our church. And one of the questions I often get is, will we be there after dark? But I can't help but think I could go to the housing project in Jacksonville and I, I don't receive that question. So, what's going on? Are we so foolish to believe that crime only happens in one neighborhood, two neighborhoods? I, I, I experienced this real really in my life um, when I told my parents as a 19 year old I was going to go to Memphis and work on National Street for the summer for part of my summer National Street at that time was the most dangerous city of street in the world per capita in the nation I'm sorry in the nation per capita isn't there safer places to go that's kind of the questioning Especially for my grandmother. She loves me. But deeper underneath that is a whole mindset. We'll make it more real. You walk into Walmart, you pass a middle aged white person, do you feel any anxiety? But if you meet a middle aged black man, do any thoughts rise in your mind or your heart that is this dangerous? What's he thinking? He's looking at me. Listen, church, don't hide behind the facade of it. We got it all figured out and we're, we don't struggle from this anymore. We don't struggle from it anymore. And get to know your neighbors well. I have a neighbor down the street, Norman. I've talked to him. Got to know him. He's, he eats at our house. We eat at his house. And he'll tell you, most of my life has been spent walking into rooms where I was the oddball. I was the different one. And all I wanted was for somebody to acknowledge me. That's all I wanted. Somebody just to come up and say hello, like they would anybody else. But there's not. There's this rigid fear that rises. We need to confess our sin and then ask God to change our heart. Not change somebody else's heart, but change my heart. Make it more like yours. Third application. We need to aggressively employ a strategy to bring about unity and racial reconciliation in this church. We do have a strategy to reach with the mission of the gospel to other continents, but we need to go about it here, aggressively, intentionally. Again, this gets me in hot water. Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable in the hot water, if you hadn't noticed. Some would disagree with this, and I understand that, but listen to me. It means that when the church here has an opening and is looking for a pastor and takes resumes and encourages resumes to come in from every possible corner, that having two applications, one from 
a Caucasian white and one from a Hispanic or African American or Chinese or Japanese. That all things being equal on those resumes, they're exactly the same. Not this one's less, but we're going to give them a shot anyway. No, they're the same. Their doctrine's the same. Their, their teachings the same. Their philosophy's the same. I'm saying this church has got to decide, are we going to launch out and take this bold step of hiring a pastor from the minority? Because, see, we can have these sermons till the cows come home and Jesus comes again. But if there is no diversity among our pastors, our leaders, they say those are good words, but no action. It's easy to talk about it. It makes them feel good because they're doing something that other churches don't do. But it's not enough. And the reason I'm saying it has to be intentional is because of the blind racism in our own hearts. Because we will naturally gravitate to those who look and act and talk and come from the same culture we come from. It's just natural. And so I believe the Spirit of God would say, all things being equal, the next staff pastor at this church needs to be someone who does not come from the same background as Dave or I. And I would go even further and say we need to be strategic. You can hire a guy from Japan, but how many Japanese people are here to see it? That's a good thing. And don't hear me wrong. If that's who God places here, that's who we should have here. But don't be afraid to unify and bring together. It might encourage you if I tell you this, and it did not happen. I take that to be the move of God. But the pastors of this church have already ex extended that. It didn't work out. It didn't happen. But it wasn't because the pastors here didn't see it and reach out. It just didn't happen this time. But I, I, I want you to know that I think it's important. That's an application here to say, keep trying. The door slams, keep trying. And an encouragement to you. Three applications and an encouragement, and we're going to pray. Give a benediction, okay? Listen. You say, Carlton, I've tried. I, I've, you preached last year, and I heard the sermon, and I said, I'm, I'm going to give it a try, God. And you, I went to work, and I asked my friend, and he, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't come. He wouldn't eat supper with me. He wouldn't go play golf with me. He wouldn't do anything. He just rejected it. My encouragement would be keep trying. In no way am I trying to indicate the problem all exists here. The problem exists on all sides of this issue. There is racism in every human heart. And you, as the, as the one already saved, and especially if you reach to a lost man, you may have to ask 25 times to get a positive response. But it's worth it. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. And don't be afraid to address it fairly and honestly. Just with your friend that you already have that's at work and just say, hey man, I notice all we ever do is work together and I want to do something besides work with you. I just want to do something together that you like to do or some 
man, can you bring your family to my house? It does no good, in, is what I'm saying, to have these sermons each year and do nothing about it. We need, to, we need to do it. We need to live it. And some of you are. And again, I praise you for that. You are doing it. And I'm saying we all need to be doing it. We all need to be doing it. So, because of the gospel, we seek to have diverse congregations. As I studied this passage, my theology was further entrenched that what is going on here in heaven is supposed to be happening in the church. Not just the church already in heaven, but the church on the earth. I believe that part of the church reigning on the earth is diversity. Part of the gospel going forward is diversity. And I see it in verse 10 as we close. And you have made them. You have made them. Already done. You've made them a kingdom. You've made them priests to our God, Jesus. And they shall reign on the earth. In society, this is a wish in Christianity, it is a certain hope. We will reign together as brothers in Christ in His church on the earth.